Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing true love, love without attachment. This is an important topic to understand as it relates to Buddhist teachings, because in the unenlightened state, we often misunderstand love for attachment. What we tend to refer to as love or think of love or practice as love and describe through our language as love in the unenlightened state is actually craving, desire, or attachment, and is the reason why our relationships tend to be so complicated and so difficult. But today, we're going to be discussing what is true love and how to practice love without attachment. There's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of this topic across the Buddhist community. So today I'm looking to help you understand this topic in more detail, answer any questions that you have, and ensure that when you walk away from today's talk that you more fully understand what is true love so that you can practice this true love in all of the relationships that you have, whether it's with your partners, your children, your friends, your family, mothers, fathers, co-workers, or just an average person that you don't even know in the world that you can learn that you can still love that person. So let's go ahead and get into this topic of true love. This topic is so important to your practice. You know, one of the most rewarding things in life is love, is just having loving compassionate, caring, kind people around us, and also having love, care, and compassion for other people. Love is wonderful. Everybody enjoys love. But in order to really benefit and experience love or true love, we need to understand what that is. So before we get into talking about true love, what I would like to do is just do a really short talk about the second and third noble truth because this is important as it relates to true love. And in order to understand today's topic about true love, it's important that you understand the second and third noble truth. These are two foundational teachings that the Buddha shared as his very first discourse and lay the foundation for everything else that you learn in Buddhist teachings, including the topic of true love. So let's discuss the second and third noble truth. The second noble truth is that we cause 
our own discontentness because the mind has craving, desire, attachment. Essentially, the mind has a longing with a strong eagerness and it craves permanence. The mind wants certain things. It has a longing, an eagerness, a strong eagerness. And when it doesn't get what it wants, then the mind is displeased or discontent. This is why we have anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment. All discontent feelings come from the mind's craving, desire, attachment, craving or having this longing with a strong eagerness. So this is what causes the discontent mind. It's the mind holding on, craving permanence. But everything in life is impermanent. Nothing ever is steady and fixed. Whatever arises is going to cease to exist. So if we try to latch on and we try to hold on, then the mind is going to be discontent when it doesn't get what it wants, when it doesn't get what it expects. So this is the second noble truth, that we cause our own discontentness through craving, through desire, through attachment, this mental longing with strong eagerness. The third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, desire, and attachment. Because the problem in the second noble truth, the cause or the problem is that the mind holds on, it latches on, it has this strong eagerness, this longing, the way to eliminate it the discontent mind, because that's the cause, the way to eliminate it is to eliminate the mind's tendency to hold on, to latch on, and to have this longing and this strong eagerness. And the Buddha gave us two remedies for this. Breathing mindfulness meditation, which is a training of the mind, active, dedicated, independent session to train the mind actively to eliminate its natural tendency to hold on and latch on. And then the other practice that he gave us is generosity, that through sharing and being generous, letting things go, it trains the mind to be unattached and it doesn't have this longing or this strong eagerness. So these two noble truths are very important as we move into talking about true love because you understand what we've been describing in the unenlightened state or what we've been thinking of love in the unenlightened state is actually not love. It's craving, it's desire, it's attachment. So the second noble truth is we cause our own discontentness when we have this mental longing or this strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment. And we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the mind's craving, desire, attachment, eliminating its desire to hold on, latch on, and have this strong eagerness, this longing. So let's talk about true love now. So let's talk about how we think about love in the unenlightened state. Essentially, what we tend to do is we tend to meet a certain person. Let's just say we're talking about a life partner or a boyfriend, a girlfriend, somebody like this. We meet a certain person, they strike up an interest, 
we think they're maybe physically attractive or maybe intellectually attractive or for whatever reasons, we've decided that we would like to pursue a relationship with this person for whatever reasons. They're kind, they're polite, they're friendly, they're handsome, they're beautiful, they have a good job, whatever it is. We look at some certain qualities or a collection of qualities and we say, this is a relationship we would like to pursue. So we start to get to know this person. We talk on the phone, we chat online, we look at their Facebook pages, we go out to the movies, we have some coffee, we maybe go to the park, we do all these different things and everything at the beginning of the relationship is absolutely wonderful. It's perfect. It couldn't be more beautiful and wonderful. And the reason why is because we have no expectations of this person. We have no obligations. We have no craving, desire, or attachment. We don't have this longing with a strong eagerness. We're just interested in getting to know the person. And things are perfect. Okay, There's no discontentness because there is no craving, desire, or attachment. But then, as the relationship continues, we have more and more pleasant experiences. We hear certain things that are pleasing to us. The person maybe gives us gifts. We go out and have pleasant experiences. We're around our friends. We have pleasant experiences. There are certain things that we really enjoy about the relationship. And these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, oh my goodness, he called me or she called me. All this happiness, this excitement, this elation, we base those feelings, those pleasant feelings, off of certain conditions that happen that this other person did. But these situations are impermanent. They don't last forever. But eventually this person does enough things that we say, I'm in love. I'm absolutely in love with this person. And you may even tell them or tell your friends or tell your family, I love this person. I have fallen in love. Okay. What's actually happened is the mind has enjoyed these pleasant feelings so much that there's now a craving, a desire, an attachment. There's a mental longing with a strong eagerness to be with this person. And now that this person has met certain expectations and we feel happy when we're around them, we now say that we're in love with them. And now the relationship goes on and on and on for however long it goes and the attachment gets stronger and stronger and stronger. When we're away from them, we miss them. We feel lonely. We feel bored. We feel sad. This is the discontentness because of this longing and this strong eagerness. This is the discontentness that's being produced in the mind because of this longing and this strong eagerness, this attachment, this craving, this desire. That's why we feel the sadness the loneliness, the boredom, maybe even the anger, right? If they go away from us for a period of time, we may even feel angry or frustrated that they've left. Well, we've caused that ourselves because our mind has latched on to this other person. 
And then what happens is we start creating these expectations of what we expect from this person. And we add to our list one by one by one. Even if they meet the first two or three expectations, we add more and we add more and we add more. More expectations, more attachments, more obligations, more craving, more desire, things that we want from this person. And the more we do that, the more discontent our mind becomes because the person isn't meeting these expectations. They're not meeting all of these obligations that we've set out for them. And how could they? Because everyone is human. They're just a normal, average person. And we form these expectations and obligations in the mind and people don't know what they are. And even if they knew what they were, they wouldn't be able to fulfill them to perfection the way that we have it in our mind that they need to do that. And we have in our mind that they need to fulfill these expectations in a certain way. And if they don't fulfill enough of these expectations in accordance with what we desire and we crave, if they don't fulfill these expectations in accordance to how we expect them to be fulfilled, then we say, I don't love you anymore. I have fallen out of love with you. Well, what has happened is this person is no longer meeting your expectations. This person is no longer fulfilling what you've determined they need to do in order to earn your love. But it's not love. It's attachment. It's craving. It's mental longing and desire attachment where we've essentially sabotaged the relationship because we've added on all of these different things that we expect of these other person that they couldn't humanly fulfill. We've essentially sabotaged the relationship. What we're essentially saying in the unenlightened state when we typically describe love is we say, I love you. Therefore, I would like you to be with me because you make me happy. Because you make me happy, I love you. And therefore, I want to be with you. And I would like to be together. But this is not love. This is selfishness. This is your own self-interest of wanting this other person to please you, wanting this other person to make you happy. And when they meet your expectations, you bring them in closer and you say, okay, now I love this person. And then when they don't meet your expectations anymore, we push them away and we say, I don't love you anymore. You haven't lost the love. What you've done is you've become more and more selfish where they no longer meet your expectations. And now we say we don't love them. What true love is, true love is, I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. I love you unconditionally. I don't have any conditions on my love. I love you. And if you understand love in this way, 
where you're not trying to put expectations or obligations and you're not trying to draw this person in for selfish reasons, when you realize that love is all about just encouraging and supporting and being peaceful with other people, the beauty in that is you can love everybody. You can love the entire world. You can love every single human being in the world. You can love every person. You can love every animal. You may disagree with somebody's speech or their actions, but you can still love them. Love meaning, I just would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. A genuine wish for goodwill for all beings. That's the beauty in understanding true love is now you can love everybody. Okay? But if we have this selfish desire and we only love people when they do what we expect, now we say, I'm in love with you and I'm out of love with you. And now I can be angry and hostile and I can put up a wall around me when this person no longer meets my expectations. But when you have true love, You just love someone because they're human. You can love all people. In order to attain an enlightened mind, you need to have love for all beings. All beings on the planet, human and animal. It doesn't mean that we fall in love with people and out of love with people. Because if you love someone with true love, you just love everybody. You love the stranger on the street. You love your friend. You love your coworker. The person who's disagreeing with you in your opinion, you can still love that person. Even though they're disagreeing with you, you can still love them. Even you see somebody do something horrible, maybe someone murders or sells drugs or robs or rapes. I don't agree with someone who murders. I don't agree with their actions and what they did but I can still love that person because I wish goodness for them. I wish peacefulness. I have good intentions and active goodwill towards them, but I don't agree with their actions, but I still love them, right? And this is how you get over resentment. There was a question recently in our Facebook group about how to get over resentment. And this is how you do it, is you learn about true love and you practice true love. And when you have true love, you don't fall in love and out of love with people. You may choose to end a relationship because it's not working out for any number of reasons, but you can still love the person. And this is why you can have a husband and a wife or a man and a woman who maybe have a child together and they choose to separate, but they can still love each other. They may be disagreeing. They may not be able to figure out how to have a peaceful and content relationship together, but they can still love each other. They can still wish for each other to be well, and they don't teach the kid to hate each other. They can actually still love and they can still get along and wish each other good will and peacefulness. So let me pause here and see what questions, if any, that we have. What it sounds like Helen is asking and Max is asking and even expanding it out broader because a lot of people experience this is what we call heartbreak or heartache, where you've been in a particular relationship and it has ended and you feel like now maybe it ended on bad terms or 
for any number of reasons. And now the mind is still discontent. It's still sad or angry or frustrated or irritated. It still longs for this other person. And this is essentially what heartbreak or heartache is, is that the mind, it has nothing to do with the heart because the heart is just a physical organ, right? But we call it a heartache and I understand why because the heart sometimes has palpitations and it literally feels like it's hurting, but it actually is coming from the mind. What it is, is the mind has this mental longing and this strong eagerness for this relationship, for this other person. There were certain enjoyable experiences that you had with this other person. When you had that other person, the mind felt happy. It felt excited. It felt elated. It felt joyful. It felt wonderful. It felt pleased. It had pleasurable feelings with this other person. Essentially, the mind latched on to this relationship and to this other person and all these experiences and the happiness was based on those conditions. And now because those conditions have changed because of impermanence, i.e. the relationship has ended, now the mind doesn't like that because the mind still has this longing and the strong eagerness for this relationship and for this other person. It's still longing. It still has this strong eagerness. It still wants this other relationship. This is how the mind holds on and it craves permanence. The mind is uncomfortable and it dislikes impermanence. When things change, the mind doesn't like it. The mind craves permanence. It wants to hold on and latch on permanently. And now that the relationship has ended, we call it heartache or heartbreak because the mind has sadness, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, whatever we have in those mental feelings. Yeah, it kind of makes the heart hurt a little bit or a lot of it in some cases. This is all the second noble truth. And this is why I started with that talk is that it's the mind being discontent because it's attempting to hold on and latch on and it has this longing and this strong eagerness for the other person in this relationship. But what you've got to do is you've got to convince yourself that this relationship is over. You know, it sounds like he has a wife, he has children, he has twins, babies. He lied to you. And that's part of what's made this harder for you is that you're probably not a person that would do this sort of thing. And you didn't envision him to be that kind of person either. But he did. He lied to you. So you've got to convince the mind that this relationship is never going to work. It's never, never, never going to work. Even if he left his wife and came to you right now, that's not going to be well for you because... He cheated on his wife. Even if he became your husband, he's probably going to cheat on you too, perhaps, because he hasn't changed his ways. He's still lying. He's not practicing the precepts. He's having sexual misconduct and he's lying. This is why his actions have caused harm. And this is why it doesn't feel good. And this is why the Buddha taught the five precepts about sexual misconduct and not lying. So even if he left his wife and came to you, it's probably not going to be 
a productive, healthy relationship. And you probably know that on a certain level, but the mind is still latched on here. So you've got to convince yourself that this relationship isn't going to work. It's not going to happen. And even if it did happen, it's pulling this man away from his family, which is not good gamma for you to do that. So you've got to move on with your life. You've got to recognize that this was a unfortunate situation, but luckily you found out when you did and now you can move on. And what you've got to do is you've got to implement breathing mindfulness meditation on a regular consistent basis because that's the remedy for this problem. And you've got to practice generosity because the problem isn't what this man did. Yes, this man was wrong to cheat on his wife and to lie to you. That wasn't correct. And he's suffering himself from his own actions and his own speech. That is a problem, but that's not the ultimate problem that's causing the heartache or causing the mind to be discontent. The ultimate problem is that the mind has this longing and this strong eagerness and it keeps holding on and your life is kind of stuck where you're not able to go out and meet other partners and enjoy true love and enjoy new relationships that can be really fulfilling for you. So the ideal situation would be that you work on yourself, you work on your own mind, you get to a point where your mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, that you understand what true love is. And then when you decide, or if you decide to have future relationships, that you can do that in a healthy way where your mind doesn't latch on. Because if you don't look at the core problem, if we look at the problem as this other person and it's his fault, it's his problem, and we're just looking externally for the problem, then we never fix the ultimate problem which is actually in the mind. The actual problem is your mind is holding on. So you've gotta fix that. And the only way to fix it is with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity and learning more and more and more about true love so that you can practice true love, right? This is one of the biggest challenges about attaining enlightenment in the household life. As a household practitioner, learning true love and how to practice that, not only with our life partners, but with our children, with our parents, with our friends, with our coworkers, and everyone else. Because in the ordained path that the Buddha set up, there's no boyfriend, there's no girlfriend, there's no husband, there's no wife, there's no kids. You basically leave everything behind and that is one way to enlightenment, but it's not the only way. Some people think that you have to give up your life partners, you have to give up your children in order to attain enlightenment and that's false. It's not correct. You can attain enlightenment while having life partners and children and relatives and these things but you have to really understand the Four Noble Truths very, very closely and practice them very closely. You have to understand the Eightfold Path. 
very, very closely and practice it very closely. You need to understand the five precepts very closely, practice them very closely, and make sure that anybody that you involve in your life is also practicing those five precepts very closely, or else there's going to be harm if other people are committing sexual misconduct or lying or stealing or all of these other things. So you can attain enlightenment in this household life, but you need to understand the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. You have to understand true love. You have to understand gamma, you know, the three poisons. You have to really dedicate time and effort to learning and practicing these teachings. And it takes time, right? You can't look outside for satisfaction. You have to resolve the internal conflicts in order to have fulfilling relationships. Otherwise, if we load up these expectations and we load up this mental longing and strong eagerness, we're just sabotaging our relationships. And this is going to be very problematic throughout our life. Any follow-up questions on that, Max, or anyone else? So we have a question from Amina, and Amina asks, is wishing peace and wellness the same as love? If so, then if we learn of a crime or something hurtful happening in the world, if we follow the path, then we should wish well to everybody, those who commit crimes, as well as those who are the victims of those crimes. Absolutely. And that's what an enlightened mind is going to do, is it's going to not have hatred and anger, and it's not going to have hostility, and it's not going to wall itself off from all of these people who we feel have harmed us or that are doing harm in the world, right? It's that second poison of hatred or anger. You know, the primary problem is craving, greed, this outward searching, this latching on with the mind. But the second poison is this hatred, this anger, this hostility, this frustration, this irritation, this ill will, where we wall ourselves off from people who we disagree with or for people who disagree with us. Just because somebody does things that we disagree with, we tend to, in the unenlightened state, put up these walls and block ourselves off. And because of this, we're inhibiting the ability to realize the natural enlightened mind where we can have a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, smile and be joyful with everyone because we're kind of fearful and we're kind of looking out for all these harmful things that might be happening around us and we're looking to wall people off and we don't like this group and we don't like this group and we like this group and I'm going to block this guy because he's doing that and I'm going to block this girl because she's doing that and she always disagrees with me. So the unenlightened mind becomes almost neurotic with fear looking out for enemies and walling itself off. And the unenlightened mind feels like as long as I wall myself off from all these people and I don't hear people who disagree with me, then I can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But then somebody pops up in your life that disagrees with you, and now your mind's discontent. So what an enlightened mind is going to do is practice true love, eliminating this hatred, this anger, this ill will, where even if people do things that we disagree with, 
either their intention, speech, or actions are disagreeable to us, we're still going to just understand that that's them. I disagree with it, but I can still love them. I can still have care. I can still wish this person peacefulness. I can still have a genuine interest in seeing this person be well, even though I disagree with their intentions, speech, or actions. And that's unconditional love. And that's where you need to move the mind to, whether it's your partner, your children, your parents, your friends, your coworkers, the strangers on the street, anybody you see, all beings, you need to have a genuine wish for peacefulness, a genuine wish for them to be well. Doesn't mean you have to go around and tell everybody that this is how you feel, but inside the mind, you need to cultivate this genuine wish for goodness for all beings. Even if they disagree with us or we disagree with them or that we disagree with their speech or actions because not everyone's going to do what we find pleasing, right? This is the unenlightened mind. We have certain expectations. We have certain criteria in our mind that we say, if somebody meets these expectations and they meet these obligations, then I will love you because I agree with you and you agree with me. You're meeting all my expectations. We can be friends. I love you. You're a good person. But then something changes because everything's impermanent. Now this person's not meeting all of our expectations or obligations. We've either changed or they've changed. And now because of this change, now we say, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be around you. I don't like you. I'm blocking you out of my life. I don't want to be around you. Right? So this is what the unenlightened mind does. But what the enlightened mind does is recognize that this person maybe talks harshly, maybe they're hostile, maybe they're unkind, unpolite, maybe their actions, maybe they steal, maybe they cheat on their wife. I don't want to be around it. I'm not going to participate in the lies. I have a genuine wish for you to be well, right? I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to condone what you're doing or support those unwholesome activities, but I still love you. You're still a human being and I still have a genuine wish. I have a genuine interest in seeing you be peaceful and seeing you be well, right? And I may choose to be away from this person or I may choose to be with them and I may choose to try to influence them in a positive way. The Buddha didn't say whether we should be with these people or away from them, but we should have a genuine interest in seeing them be well and seeing them be peaceful. And this is what an enlightened mind is going to do. Whether you choose to be around the person or not is up to you, but I would suggest not to participate in any of the unwholesome decisions that they're making because then the results of that is going to come back to you. We have a question from Mertza. So Mertza asks, is there a concept of tough love in the teachings of Gautama Buddha? This is interesting because Max and I were just talking about this the other day. Uh, um, yes, we were. Yeah. So the Buddha, he had four ways that he talked to people. Okay. 
the first one is he would talk gentle and he would try to teach people with gentle speech. And this is how I've talked with all of you guys. And I always talk gentle because you guys respond to gentle speech. And then the second way that he taught is he said he talked sternly, firmly, right? Stern. We think that a Buddha is like sitting on a clouds and every single word he says must be fluffity, fluffity, fluff with lots of clouds. But in his teachings, he says, if someone doesn't respond to gentle instruction and gentle teaching, he speaks sternly, firmly, right? And then he says, if somebody doesn't respond to that, perhaps they're the kind of person that needs to sometimes speak gentle with them and sometimes speak sternly. And he said some people respond to that, okay? So gentle speech, everybody understands what gentle speech is. Stern speech, speak stern. Bailan, that's my son. Bailan, your mom and dad has been teaching you not to lie and you just lied. We don't want any lies in this house. Stop lying. This is stern. This is firm. But notice, it's still with loving kindness. It still is the five factors, right? It's still at the right time. It's still true. It's still gentle to a certain degree, right? It's firm, but it's gentle. It's beneficial. It's with a mind of loving kindness. By line, no stealing. You took your mom's mobile phone. We've talked about this three times previously. And those three times, I spoke gentle with you. But now daddy has to talk firm with you because you're not correcting your behavior. You're still stealing your mom's mobile phone to play video games. That's not correct. You need to ask her permission. Do you understand? This is stern, right? So with my son, I use the third option, which is most of the time I always speak gentle. And if he gets the lesson and he gets it, we're done. We're good to go. But if we have to discuss this multiple times and he's getting worse and worse, sometimes I speak sternly to him. I speak firmly, right? This might be what we call tough love, okay? So these are the three ways, gentle, stern, or some people need gentle and stern, okay? And then there's the fourth option. This is an interesting one. The Buddha said, if somebody doesn't respond to gentle speech, they don't respond to stern speech, they don't respond to gentle and stern, then the fourth one, he says he kills them. Yeah, he literally says, I kill them. And then somebody speaks up, it's a Brahmin, Brahmin or like Hindu priest. He says, but enlightened one, how could you ever kill somebody? Your discipline says you don't kill, you don't take life. How could you ever kill somebody? He says, ah, Brahmin, killing somebody in my discipline and my teachings means that I stop teaching them. I no longer teach them. If they don't respond to gentle speech, they don't respond to stern speech, and they don't respond to gentle and stern speech, 
then I kill them. I stop teaching them. That's the same as killing them, right? That's what the Buddha essentially said. Now, with children, you know, we can't just stop teaching them. They are our children. We have to guide them. That's our responsibility to restrain them from evil. This is part of what the Buddha said is our roles as parents. We need to restrain our children from evil by teaching them and giving them wise lessons. So with children, we need to talk gentle and sometimes we need to talk firm. But with other people, you know, if gentle speech didn't work with, for example, say Max, I've only ever talked gentle to him. If that didn't work, I just wouldn't teach him because there's no reason for me to talk firmly with Max. He's a 30 some year old man. And if he's not interested in learning, then he's not interested in learning. So I would just kill you, Max. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wouldn't want that. yeah, we wouldn't want that. Right. So with adults, you know, you're essentially talking gentle, but with children, you know, you may need to speak sternly. And if you can think about the Buddha 2,500 years ago with all of these various people becoming his disciples, essentially the Buddha was their adopted father, essentially. He was essentially adopting thousands and thousands of monks, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, as they became his students. He essentially became an adopted father. So for them, yes, he taught gentle, stern, and gentle and stern. And then if they didn't respond, he killed them. He basically kicked them out of his teachings. We wouldn't think that a Buddha would kick a student out. But if somebody's being disrespectful, if someone's being hostile, if someone's not responding to his teachings, why would he keep spending time and effort and energy to keep teaching this person if they're not responding to his teachings? He's got all these hundreds and thousands of people that need to learn from him and he needs to guide them on enlightenment. If he keeps having to spend all this time with this person who's not responding to his teachings, why do it? It's like drilling holes in people's head or talking to the wall. So he would kill them. He would kick them out and he would stop teaching them. And this is their gamma because they weren't responding to his teachings. They were being rude or disrespectful or repeatedly hostile. So he killed them. So with children, we have to be patient. We need to be loving and kind. We need to be compassionate and showing them our patience and our all of those things. They will practice those same ways if we are that way with them. But for me, if I was teaching any of you guys and you didn't respond, then I wouldn't speak any other way other than gentle with you because I'm not Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago. With that said, you know, you have to make your choices of how you speak because stern speech doesn't mean hostile and aggressive. It doesn't mean hurtful speech. Stern or firm speech just means that the tone of your voice is going to change and maybe the look on your face, right? When my son does something like, you know, maybe he lied about something and it's, it's such a small lie and we know that, but we want to impress upon this young child how important not lying is. So after I've talked to him two, three, four times about lying, if he lies again, all the gentle speech isn't working, then, you know, daddy kind of makes his eyes look a little bit mean. And I look into his eyes and I make him sit up real straight. And I kind of 
change the tone of my voice a little bit. It's actually the same words that I use when it, I'm speaking gently, but I'm just speaking a little bit more sternly and firmly so he knows this is serious. Because if I just keep speaking gentle two, three, four, eight, ten times, and he keeps doing the same problem, we know the definition of crazy or insane. It's doing the same thing, expecting different results. So if I keep speaking gentle to him two, three, four times, and it's not creating change in his life, then I need to go to that tough love or that stern speech where I'm just a little bit firm, my eyes are a little bit looking into him, and I just kind of look at him real firmly, and I speak real firmly. I usually have him sit on the floor, and I will sit up in a chair, or I will stand while he's sitting on the floor. I need to be above him to take care of his ego. So the position of where you talk to your children is very important. So if we're trying to give Bailan a really deep lesson on something, he's usually going to sit lower and his mom and dad are going to sit up higher. So he's going to sit on the floor. We're going to sit on the sofa. Usually if we're teaching him, he's going to be sitting on the floor and we're going to be standing up or we're going to be sitting in a chair. And this creates a, a hierarchy in his mind where he will respond better to this. Whereas if he's sitting in a chair and I'm sitting on the floor and I'm trying to teach him and I'm looking up to him, it doesn't have the same effect as if he's looking up to me and I'm looking down to him. Even if everything's fine and I'm speaking gently and speaking you know, very gently, then he's still going to be low and I'm going to be high. This is very important in the mind of the child that they receive learning and lessons from their parents in this way. It's very, very important. Now, sometimes, you know, I'm driving in a car and he's over there and we're just talking about light stuff. But if something serious is going on in the household, he's going to be sitting lower and me and his mom are going to be sitting higher in order to teach him and make sure that he understands the situation. So these are very important. And also positioning is very important that my wife and me sit together, right? We sit like here and then our son sits in front of us. So he sees mom and dad are united. He's looking at mom and dad. It's not like mom's off to one side, dad's off to another side and the kids over here. We actually sit in a position where mom and dad are united so that when dad talks, it's the same as if mom's talking. And if mom's talking, it's the same as if dad's talking and our son is looking up to us. And in this way, we can train him and we can teach him, we can influence his mind to a much higher degree than if we do it otherwise. So yes, tough love or speaking sternly is important, but you still have to be kind, you still need to be polite, you still need to be calm, peaceful, and content. Just maybe with a more firm voice, that's tough love. Or another aspect of tough love, like when I was growing up, I would get in trouble with the police, believe it or not. I used to get in a lot of trouble and my mom wouldn't come get me. She's like, you got yourself in trouble, you get yourself out. And those were some of the best lessons I could ever get. Now the first or second time 
she came and got me and she came and talked to me and tried to understand. But after that, you got yourself in trouble, you get yourself out. And those were some of the best lessons because sometimes when we keep showing up and we keep doing the same thing, the child thinks, okay, every time I get in trouble, my mom's going to come take care of the problem and I'm out of here. And the child never deals with its own karma. It never deals with the results of its decisions. So by my mom coming to get me the first or second time, showing love, showing kindness, showing compassion, she showed that. But then the third, fourth, fifth, and so on, what I learned very quickly is every time I get in trouble, I'm going to have to deal with it. Nobody else is going to deal with it for me. And that made me more wise. That helped me to get out of trouble is because I learned every time I get in trouble, I'm going to have a big boatload of things to deal with and nobody's coming to help me. I'm in this on my own. So that's another aspect of tough love is letting children or people deal with their own problems. Maybe you help the first or second time, but after that, you keep helping. Sometimes it's not going to have the good result. Maybe you help a day or two or three later, once they come home, you can have talks with them, you can help them and guide them and give them guidance. So you have to choose for yourself what's the right way for you to apply learning and lessons, but do it in an unattached way. Whereas if my mom was attached to me and she had this longing and this strong eagerness and every time I got in trouble, she was right there to protect me. She was right there to help me. If she was doing this, then every time she does that, her attachment is actually going to cause problems for her because she feels sad or lonely or frustrated. But it's also going to have problems for me because every time she protects me, I never learn to deal with my own problems. And what we're doing as parents is we are essentially preparing our children to make really good decisions because we can't be with our children all the time. So our goal isn't to make all the decisions for our children so that they will have a good life. That's attachment. That's not love. That's not true love. If we are making all the decisions for our children, then they never learn how to make decisions for themselves and therefore they never see the results of their decision. So what we need to do as parents is learn how to be unattached where whatever the outcome is, that's the outcome. And we train our children to make really good decisions for their life. And then they get to deal with the results of those decisions. So at seven and a half years old, my son makes certain decisions on his own. And sometimes we ask him to tell us what those decisions are before he actually makes them. And if they're good decisions and we know they're good decisions, we're like, oh, that's great. Go forward. But if his decision isn't quite good, then we'll tell him, you know, we think you need to think about that a little bit more before you make that decision. And some things you ought to think about is you might want to think about this. You might want to think about this. You might want to think about this and then come back to us when you have some other thoughts. Right. And this is a way of not being attached. This is allowing each person to conduct their life in whatever way they need. So slowly since he was first born, we're slowly allowing him to make bigger and bigger and bigger decisions as he's showing us that his wisdom 
is improving and he's gaining more and more wisdom, he's able to make bigger and bigger and bigger decisions. But we're unattached to that and we're allowing him to reap the rewards or experience the unwholesome gamma associated with whatever decisions he makes. So to me, this is kind of like what I would call tough love. I have a question, David. So for, for someone who isn't practicing right view and isn't understanding that they cause their own discontentedness, there may be more of a tendency to avoid people that we just find unwholesome. We don't like, um, even if we know that the behavior is unwholesome, we are, we don't like that and stay away. You mentioned earlier about so like blocking on Facebook, for example. However, if we are practicing right view, we are taking responsibility. What are the kinds of circumstances where we may still choose to walk away from a relationship or even cut contact? You mentioned earlier about one of the styles of speech being that a Buddha or a teacher would say, kill them, right? cut them off. Mm -hmm. But as lay people, what are the circumstances where that might be the right option? I mean, you have to make these decisions for yourself, right? Because there, there isn't kind of like, if this happens in the relationship, if that happens in the relationship, if this happens in the relationship, everybody's different. And you have to have a certain amount of patience, a certain amount of compassion, a certain amount of walking this journey together. And you're both evolving together as partners or as, as your children. So... I wouldn't be able to give you a list and saying if somebody does this in the relationship or if somebody does this in the relationship because everybody's going to make those decisions differently. But what I can tell you on the flip side of that is that if you involve people in your life that are learning and practicing these teachings, even if they're not actively practicing Buddhist teachings, but if you notice that through other traditions, they happen to be practicing certain aspects of these teachings, you'll know that those are going to lead to good results. For example, if in order to f surround yourself with people that are f practicing these teachings, if you're looking for a life partner, of course, you want to look for someone who isn't killing, right? Not just isn't killing human beings, but if they're killing animals, if they're killing, you know, other beings, that's going to produce unwholesome results. Their mind is very comfortable killing. And that means that there's going to be unwholesome results of that. If you surround yourself with people who aren't stealing, right? If people are stealing that are around you, that means their mind is comfortable with causing that harm. And if they're stealing from other people, they're going to steal from you too. It's only a matter of time. You're going to get that harm. Surround yourself with people that aren't committing sexual misconduct, that are loyal to their partners. I forget, I think, uh, I forget who asked the question uh, about the partner who committed sexual misconduct. They weren't aware of it. And then once they became aware of it, whatever happened, happened. But, you know, that causes a lot of harm. And if we surround ourselves with people who are loyal, who are trustworthy, who are faithful, you're going to have more wholesome relationships with those people because they're making better decisions. If you surround yourself with people who aren't lying, right? If you find 
that friends of yours or coworkers of yours or partners, if you catch them in repeated lies, this is very problematic, even if it's little tiny lies, right? Because if someone's willing to lie to you over repeated situations, that means they're probably doing some other things as well. And it's going to result in, in unwholesome things. And then the th fifth one, you guys understand, I'm talking about the five precepts here. If somebody is taking intoxicants in order to cause heedlessness, if they're taking substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to cause harm to their mind. Therefore, if they're in your life, it's going to cause harm to you. And I'm not saying to block those people out or walk away from them, but I'm saying you have to be very aware of their intentions, their speech, and their actions are going to be harmful. So you want to surround yourself with people, even if they don't consider themselves Buddhist practitioners, but you see people that are practicing these things, these sorts of things, you're going to have good results in those relationships, whether they're friends or partners or what have you. And then on top of that, if you go to the Eightfold Path, with right view, if you surround yourself with people who accept responsibility for their problems, which is right view, accepting responsibility for our own problems, if you are around people who are always blaming everyone else for their problems, eventually they're going to blame you for all their problems. So you should surround yourself with people that are accepting and responsible of their problems. Right intention is all about harmlessness, non-ill will. So if you surround yourself with people who are practicing harmlessness, right intention, you're going to have better relationships. If you pr surround yourself with people who are practicing right speech, they're speaking at the right time, what they say is truthful, they speak gentle, they speak beneficial, they speak with a mind of loving kindness, they speak blamelessly, they're not gossiping, they're not slandering, they're not idle chatter, all of this frivolous speech, right? If you surround yourself with people like this, you're going to have better, more wholesome relationships. And then you can go right on down the line, right? Right action all the way through the Eightfold Path. What you can start doing is selecting partners, selecting friends, selecting jobs, selecting employees to work for your companies if you're a boss, selecting bosses if you have a boss, selecting bosses who you observe are practicing these teachings, even if they don't consider themselves Buddhist, you know that they're not killing, they're not stealing, they're not committing sexual misconduct, they're not lying, they're not drinking intoxicants or taking other substances that cause heedlessness. You know that they're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action. You're gonna have wholesome relationships with partners, friends, co-workers, employees of yours, if you're a boss, bosses, jobs. If you surround yourself with these kind of people, you'll have more and more good, wholesome results. If you're around people that have lots of ego or arrogance, you know what that feels like. That's not going to be very good. If you're around people who are trying to force their views on you, trying to force their opinions, always trying to get you to do what they want you to do. This is their craving. This is their expectations. And they're trying to push those opinions. They're trying to push those views. They're trying to force you and mold you into being and making decisions the same way that they do. 
That's their craving. And that's not going to amount to a good relationship with you and for you. So if you look at these kind of wholesome qualities, people are practicing loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings. People who are practicing compassion, they have concern for others' misfortune. They're practicing sympathetic joy, where when somebody else is successful, they feel joy about that. They don't feel jealous. You see them practicing equanimity, calmness of mind, evenness of temper. They treat everybody impartially, right? They're not racist. They're not discriminatory based on sex or sexual orientation or race or creed or their country of origin. When you see these wholesome qualities that the Buddha is teaching, you're aspiring to be that kind of person and you're striving more and more to be that kind of person. So you surround yourself with these kind of people. You will do really well in the world. The Buddha actually said we should seek out good, wholesome companions, associates, and comrades. This is what he said. He said, if we have these type of people around us, our mind will lean towards enlightenment much more readily. So, for example, if you're in a group of people who are using drugs and alcohol and having multiple girlfriends or boyfriends, they're lying, they're stealing, things like this, your mind's going to tend to go in that direction because you're around that kind of activity, those kinds of people. Whereas if you're around people who are practicing these sorts of qualities that we're talking about now, then your mind is going to move in that direction. And as a group, you can be more supportive and encouraging of each other in order to attain enlightenment. And this is why it's wonderful when like a whole entire household is learning and practicing these teachings. So right now, if you're practicing these teachings as a person in your household, but your partner or your children or other people in your household aren't practicing these teachings, it's going to be a little bit harder for you because they don't understand. So the more people that you can involve in learning and practicing these teachings, not only your family unit, but your extended family of friends and coworkers, it's only going to be better for you. This is why it's so great. Like Amina, she's got her daughter and her husband and her are all kind of working together to learn and practice these teachings. You can all support and encourage each other towards enlightenment. And this is what true love is all about, right? It's not about Amina forcing her husband to do this and having these expectations that he will do this or else she's going to leave him, right? That's attachment. That's craving. That's not true love. That's craving. What I'm sure Amina did was kind of invited her husband and encouraged him and allowed it to be his choice whether he chooses to learn and practice. That's true love. That's wishing others to be well. That's having a genuine wish for the peacefulness of other beings and allowing each being to make a choice on their own in order to step forward and do certain things. So what craving attachment is that we call love is I have a certain set expectations and obligations that I'm trying to impress upon somebody else. And when they fulfill those things, I will say I love them. And when they don't fulfill them, I don't love them. This is craving. This is attachment. This is selfishness. What true love is, is I love you just the way you are. 
sure, you can learn these teachings and you can practice these teachings and you can be a better person, but that's your choice. That's up to you. And if you would like to learn these, great. And if you don't, that's okay too. And you love this person regardless, unconditional love. So we need to have the freedom to allow everybody to make their own personal choices. But then in certain situations, Max, if I was with a partner and I saw killing, I saw stealing, I saw sexual misconduct, I saw lying, I saw substances that cause heedlessness, I saw a lack of loving kindness, a lack of compassion, a lack of sympathetic joy, a lack of equanimity. If I see a lack of taking responsibility for their problems, I see them having intentions to harm people. I see them practicing ill will, hatred and anger. I see them speaking hostile and aggressive towards people. Yeah, I'm not interested in being with that person because it's not going to be good for me. But where you decide to either improve that person and help that person, encourage them to learn, or whether you choose to eliminate and finish the relationship, that's a personal choice for each individual that you have to make on a case-by-case basis. Got it. Thanks, David. Yes. Yes, all makes sense. And I think there's also uh, a middle way to be drawn here, and there's an understanding we need to bring about that compassion does not mean putting ourselves in harm's way. And so if we are in a relationship where there is harm being done, then we can still have compassion, even though it may be necessary to remove ourselves from that harm. Right. And remember, the number one principle of loving kindness and compassion is you have to have it for yourself first. You know, there was a couple of sessions ago where there was a a young lady on our session where she was in an abusive relationship and her male partner was abusive to her and very traumatic. And she's still in the relationship. And what you have to do is you have to have loving kindness and compassion for yourself first. You can't ever have active goodwill in concern for others misfortune for others without having it for yourself first it's like i can't buy somebody food if i don't have money for myself first so i can't have active goodwill and love other people if you don't have love for yourself first so you need to practice self-love not conceited not arrogant not selfish love but you need to have self-love. You need to forgive yourself when you make a mistake. You need to forgive yourself when things don't go well. You need to forgive yourself and not judge yourself. By loving yourself, by having loving kindness and compassion and having true love for yourself and getting in touch with what that truly is, then you're more likely to practice that with other people. Whereas if you hate yourself, you have negative view of yourself, you have negative self-talk, you're always judging yourself, you're always putting yourself down, you're always thinking negatively about yourself, you're going to do that to other people too, most likely. You know, if you're judging yourself, you're going to judge other people. So you've got to improve that inner dialogue, that self-talk. you got to improve that and make sure that that is coming from a place of true love where you have a genuine interest in seeing yourself be peaceful and seeing yourself be well. And by cultivating that for yourself, you can then expand that out 
and have it for other people as well. Okay, David, no more questions at the moment. Okay, I have something that I would like to share with you. I would like to move our discussion from this talk of kind of like partners and children. I would like to move our talk of true love towards parents, our parents specifically, okay? Because this is a challenge in Western culture. A lot of times there's a lot of resentment and hurtful feelings from our parents. And we tend to not just have expectations and obligations for our romantic partners and our life partners and our children, but we tend to have these expectations and obligations for our parents. And when they don't meet our expectations, we think they're bad parents. We think they haven't shown enough love to us. When in reality, we might just be walling them off too. We might just be having ill will or hatred or anger or frustration towards our parents. So this teaching of true love, it doesn't just apply to life partners where we need to love openly and unconditionally, but it applies to our parents too. Because what we have to remember is that perfect life partner, that perfect child, that perfect parent, it only exists in our mind. It doesn't exist. That perfect partner that you have in your mind that you're looking for, it doesn't exist. It only exists in the mind. What happens is we project this perfectness on our partners, on our children, on our parents, and we expect them to be this perfect being, but we're not perfect ourselves. And we expect this perfectness from them. And when they're not perfect, then they don't meet our expectations and we start walling them off and blocking them off. And this leads to a lot of problems and hostility and, and tension in relationships with parents. And what we have to realize is that our parents are imperfect people, just like us. Our parents are imperfect people. They're not perfect. And they are parenting us through whatever wisdom, whatever intelligence, whatever knowledge they have from their life. Whatever they grew up with, whatever they've evolved to, they're parenting us through that. And while our minds might have evolved and we think that there's some other things that they should be doing, the reality of the fact is, is that they're doing the best that they can do in most cases. They're dealing with a lot of struggles in life just like everybody else. So if we maintain these expectations and these obligations, not just for our life partners and our children, but if we maintain them for our parents, our parents are never going to be able to meet those expectations. Same as our siblings, our brothers and sisters. They're not going to be able to meet these expectations that we hold, these obligations that we hold, and it's just going to create tension in our relationship. And what we have to do is we need to be accepting of all people and just love them for who they are and have unconditional love for them. We may not agree with their intentions, their speech and their actions for our parents or our siblings, but we can still have love. We can still have a genuine wish for their well-being. This is very, very important that we don't cut off our family ties, that we stay open and loving it doesn't mean you have to go to every single family event. It doesn't mean that you have to be around them all the time. It doesn't mean you even have to, you have to call them. But in your mind, you need to be of the thinking that if this person needed my help, I would help them. 
Or if this person called me up and would like to talk, sure, I'll talk with them. Because if you put a wall or a barrier between you and these other people, it's not going to turn out with good results. And the Buddha gave us a really good teaching on this that I would like to read to you guys and help you understand how important parents really are. Because remember, parents are the ones who brought us into this world. In this human realm, this is the absolute best time, the best realm to attain enlightenment. So attaining this human birth is like the best thing that we could ever have, is to have this human birth with the opportunity to attain enlightenment. Because in the lower realms, it's impossible to attain enlightenment. In the upper realm of heaven, it's not as likely because beings are pretty complacent. So the two people who gave us birth, no matter how we feel about them, no matter what they've done to us, they at least gave us this birth. They at least gave us this human life by them coming together. So the Buddha gives us teachings on this about how we should consider our parents. And I think it's very powerful. It's got a couple of paragraphs, so I'm going to be reading for a while. But I think it's very important that you guys hear this. It's in chapter 14, if you've already read the chapter. But for those of you guys that haven't, I'm just going to read it for you. It's titled, Repaying One's Mother and Father. Bhikkhus, there are two persons that cannot easily be repaid. What two? One's mother and father. Even if one should carry about one's mother on one shoulder and one's father on the other shoulder, while doing so, you have a lifespan of a hundred years. Basically, you carry your parents on your shoulders for a hundred years. Live for a hundred years. And if one should attend to them by anointing them with balms, by massaging, bathing, and rubbing their limbs, and they even void their urine and excrement, like cleaning up our parents' urine and defecation, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them. This is the first paragraph. So if we carry our parents on our shoulders for a hundred years, we massage them with bombs, we bathe them, we rub their limbs, we clean up their urine and their poop, we still haven't done enough to repay our parents for giving us this human birth. It continues. Even if one were to establish one's parents as supreme lords and rulers over this great earth, abounding in the seven treasures. Okay, so if we put our parents in a position where they're ruling over the entire earth and they have amazing amount of wealth and we've given this wealth to our parents, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them, right? So if we establish them as this great ruler with all these riches, we still haven't done enough for our parents. For what reason? Here it is. One line. It sums it all up. Parents are of great help to their children. They bring them up 
feed them and show them the world. Whether it's your parents, your biological parents, adopted parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, some other caregivers, it takes a lot of work to feed and clothe and bring up a child and show them the world and give them wisdom and knowledge. It's a lot of work. So if you're 30 years old, if you're 20 years old, if you're 50 years old right now, you are where you are as a human being and self-sustainable because there were people who provided you food, clothing, education, supplies, shelter, medical care, all of these things were provided to you and other people worked extremely hard to give this to you and give you the wisdom, show you the world, right? So this is why we are needing to be very aware of this relationship of our caregivers and our parents. So the parents are of great help to their children. They bring them up, feed them, and show them the world, okay? Now, this is the Buddha saying we have all this debt of gratitude that we need to understand because of what our parents have done for us. Now he goes into this last paragraph of what if a parent doesn't do that? This is where his teachings are very deep and very profound. And this is where I think for Western culture, we tend to kind of maybe see this, right? And this teaching is helpful. He says, but bhikkhus, if when one's parents lacks faith, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in faith. Faith is confidence. If they don't have confidence, you encourage them and settle them and try to establish them in confidence to confidently learn and practice these teachings. When one's parents are immoral, your parents are having sex with multiple people, they're using drugs or alcohol, they're lying, they're stealing, they're racist, they're harmful to people. When one's parents are immoral, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in virtuous behavior, right? So we need to kind of guide them and help them see what virtuous behavior is. If when one's parents are miserly, meaning they're, they're stingy, they're kind of holding on selfishly, they're craving, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in generosity. Help teach them generosity. One of the best ways to teach them generosity is being generous to them. If when one's parents are unwise, when someone is unwise in the Buddhist teachings, it means they're not practicing his teachings. They're not practicing loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. They're not practicing the five precepts. They're not practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action. So if one's parents are unwise, they're not practicing these good, wholesome teachings. One encourages, settles, and establishes them in wisdom, meaning you share the teachings with them. Give them a book. Maybe show them a little bit better way. Instead of being discriminatory, maybe show them a better way. Right? My grandparents grew up in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And when I was around them 
early in life, you know, there was still a lot of discrimination towards African-American people. You know, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. You know, I would hear things from my grandparents sometimes that bothered me about them being discriminatory towards people with dark skin, not just African-Americans, but Asians as well, because my grandfather was in World War II. He killed Japanese soldiers, right? So when I heard those things from my grandparents, I would very politely and kindly try to help them see a better way. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but they never got angry at me because I always did it in a kind and polite way. Okay, so when one's parents are unwise, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in wisdom. Share good wisdom with them. Do it in a humble way. He says, in such a way, one has done enough for one's parents, repaid them, and done more than enough for them. So if you've carried them on your shoulders for a hundred years, if you've bathed them, rubbed their limbs, cleaned their pee and their poop, you've given them this ruling over the land, you've given them all of these riches, that's not enough because that's just stuff on the surface. You've just rubbed their limbs. You just gave them money. What the Buddha is saying here is if our parents are unwise, teach them, guide them, Sometimes the roles have to reverse a little bit. Maybe the children actually learn these teachings before the parents. In our case, with my wife and I, we've learned these teachings well ahead of our son, and we're able to guide him and help him and able to establish him in wisdom. But my wife's parents and my parents never learned these teachings. So we need to teach them and guide them as well. The roles kind of reverse a little bit. But with a child, you know, you heard me say my son sits on the floor, we sit up higher, we, you know, talking to make sure that he understands what these lessons are. But with our parents, we have to take a much different approach and we have to be very wise about how we share these teachings with them because in their mind, you know, they think that maybe they're above us because we're their children. So we have to kind of humbly and peacefully share these teachings with them in a way that they will accept it and they will understand it and it will improve the condition of their mind and improve the condition of their life. So if we're attached to our parents and we have this craving and this yearning and we have all these expectations of them and we're trying to forcefully do things to them or for them, it's not going to work. The relationship's going to be discontent. But if we realize that they need to gradually learn, then we can lightly, politely, humbly share these teachings with them without being attached to the outcome and realize that even after sharing these two or three or four times, they still might not improve their life but at least we tried and that's what the buddha is saying here is that if you try to do these things if you try to encourage settle and establish them in virtuous behavior and generosity and wisdom then in this way you've done enough for your parents and if at that point you know you need to kind of create some distance then okay 
and that's understandable. So you have to figure out, like Max was saying, is what's the middle way? Where's the real middle for you here? And for every single person, that's going to be a little bit different. Questions, Max? And then, David, how, how about if we, we try all these things, we instill them with faith, generosity, we try and drop nuggets of wisdom in there, yeah, around, say, right view, taking responsibility. But it's just not of interest. Mm-hmm. Then what do we do? That's where you have to be unattached to the outcome. And you have to realize that their life is their life. They're making their own choices in life. And you need to be comfortable with whatever choices they make and know that they're on their own path. And if they don't improve the condition of their mind and they don't attain enlightenment in this life or at death, then they need to be reborn. And that's just the way that it works. And you need to be unattached to that. There's no part of these teachings where we're evangelizing, where we're going out and forcing people, where we're trying to impress upon others to they have to do this or all these bad things are going to happen to them. We're not evangelizing, right? You don't see evangelist Buddhist practitioners. You know, I mean, there's probably some somewhere but it's not part of the Buddhist teachings because in order to attain enlightenment, it has to be a series of about a million or five million decisions that you make to pick up the book, to learn, to meditate, to focus on the breath, to refine your meditation practice, to learn about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, to learn about the Brahma Viharas, to learn about all these things. There's no way to force somebody or coerce them into learning and practicing these teachings. Enlightenment just doesn't work that way. So don't even start out that way. Just politely and kindly offer suggestions, encourage them, settle and establish. Just attempt to influence. And if it doesn't work, then ultimately you know, you just know it's not going to work. And, you know, you should still love them. You should still have a genuine wish for their goodness, for their peacefulness, for them to be well, but realize that they've made the choice that they're going to continue to be racist, for example, right? And I would say that early in life, I knew that my grandparents were racist. I knew this based on the way that they talked. Because of the quality of time that I spent with my grandmother, I was able to slowly move her to a point where she stopped being that way. I was able to influence her. But my grandfather was very different. He was a Marine. He grew up in a different world than us. And again, he killed Asian people in in World War II. I got to a point where I just knew, like, okay, he's just going to always be that way. But interesting enough, He got diagnosed with cancer and over two and a half years, he was trying to fight that. Towards the end of his life, the last six months or so, at that time I was dating an Asian woman. He invited us to his house and he was adamantly against it. He was adamantly against me dating an Asian woman. But at the end of his life, he invited us to his house 
We sat down on the sofa. We talked with him. He had his oxygen in. He was obviously dying. By the time we were done the conversation, he looked us in the eyes and he said, I'm very happy for you guys. It's nice to see that you guys are together and I want you guys to know that I wish you well. I wish you all the best in life. So if I would have stayed attached all those years and tried to push and force my grandfather to see that his racism isn't good, you know, I tried to influence him different times in life, but I didn't force and push. If I would have forced and pushed with craving, my mind would have been discontent. But by just letting him walk his own path, eventually, by the time he met his death, he accepted it and he acknowledged that all people are human beings. My sister has two children from an African-American man and he was adamantly against that. He was adamant to the point where he wouldn't even allow the children or my sister in his house anymore. He wouldn't be around those children. But by the time that he got closer and closer to his death, he started accepting them into his house, inviting them to his house. He would sit with them. He knew he was dying. And this is how natural death leans towards enlightenment. You know, this was something we were talking about in the group this week, is how natural death leans towards enlightenment. These fetters and all these teachings that the Buddha shared, as someone reaches closer and closer to natural death, they tend to fall away and people tend to lean towards enlightenment at natural death. But if you learn these teachings well ahead of time, then you can actually attain enlightenment before death and enjoy the results all the way until death. But in this particular situation, I didn't force Max. I didn't keep going. I didn't keep craving and trying to convince him. I just, okay, that's the way he's going to be. Then that's just the way he's going to be. I'm going to still love him anyway. He's my grandfather. He's teaching me a lot of things. I will just love him anyway. And on his own path, he figured it out. So if we have in our mind, if we have craving, if we have expectations, and I want granddad to be here, and just because it's in my mind and I've evolved to here, I want granddad to be there with me, then that craving of trying to push him and push him and push him is going to cause me to be discontent. So by eliminating the expectations of I want everybody to be here at my level of consciousness where I am, and we just gradually allow it to happen on its own, you're oftentimes surprised that that will happen without your involvement whatsoever. That's great. Thanks, David. And another thing we discussed on topic was that, of course, our own practice is always top priority because if we're not practicing, then how can we hope to help another person? And simply by being around other people, if we are practicing well, then that will have an influence on them. Exactly. And also, we don't actually, we don't actually know what is best for other people. That's right. You know, in terms of the individual choices, uh, but if we can practice well, then maybe we can equip them to make better decisions for themselves. That's a good point, Max. Where the problem comes in, where we sabotage our relationships, is we think that whatever in our mind, whatever expectations or obligations we have in our mind, we think that that's the way everybody should be. And that's the permanence. Right. That's the mind craving permanence is that we think just because of what's in our mind and it all works for us that we need to impress this upon everybody. And now what happens is we 
sabotage relationships because we're trying to force and influence everybody to do things our way and we're doing it with such a longing and such a strong eagerness that it causes discontentness for us and other people. So we need to just allow everybody to be everybody, whoever they are, and just love them for who they are. Just love everybody for no reason other than the fact that they're human and love them without condition. And by doing this, what you're going to realize is that your relationships can blossom. Because if you're in a relationship where you're not trying to force your ways on other people and they're not trying to force their ways on you, then you can be more peaceful and loving in the relationship. Everybody can do whatever they feel comfortable with. And if they feel comfortable being together, then that's great. If you feel comfortable being apart, then that's fine too. So we have a question from Bill. Bill asks, what is the best type of meditation when we're struggling with a strong attachment for a parent? Since my dad passed away mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, I've become much closer to my mum. And when I think about her struggles with pain and thoughts of loss, it's very difficult to drop the attachment. When I try this, I feel like I'm suddenly a robot who doesn't feel and doesn't care. What is the middle way to feel? Well, I've talked with Bill a few times about his attachment with his mom, and that's a common thing, right? That's one of the hardest attachments for most people to get over is attachment to their mom. Like the Buddha said, I mean, we're such debt of gratitude. And in terms of our parental figures, who did more, <laughs> the dad or the mom? Well, we grew inside this woman's stomach and kicked and screamed and did all kinds of things. And she, most mothers, I mean, they just really do amazing things for us as a, as a mother. So that's a really hard attachment, but it's an attachment nonetheless. And it needs to be eliminated. You can still have care. You can still have compassion. You can still have a relationship, but you have to eliminate this mental longing and this strong eagerness with your mom or your dad or anybody else. So Bill, you asked about what meditation. Remember, there's only two meditations, breathing mindfulness meditation, which addresses craving that first poison and loving kindness meditation, which addresses the second poison, hatred or anger. The third poison gets addressed by learning and practicing the teachings, gaining wisdom. So craving, 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 attachment, desire, mental longing, strong eagerness. It's always going to be breathing mindfulness meditation. The attachment and discontentness that you're feeling with your mom is the same attachment you feel to, let's just say you had a car and somebody scratched your car. Those look on the surface as two different problems that I'm discontent because my mom is not healthy and that's making me frustrated. And somebody scratched my car and that's making me angry. On the surface, they look like two completely different issues, but they're actually the same problem. It's the craving of the mind. It's the mind having this longing and strong eagerness for permanence, wanting things, expecting things to be a certain way, and when they're not that way, we're disappointed, we're angry, we're frustrated. So because these two things are actually caused by the same problem, the solution is exactly the same. Breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. That's what's going to slowly train the mind to 
move it towards not holding on so tightly. And I can tell you that some people don't attain enlightenment until certain people in their life have died. So you want to continually actively work to try to eliminate this mental longing and strong eagerness towards your mom that you have, Bill, and keep working at it with breathing mindfulness meditation, with generosity, with trying to to not be attached and find that middle way. But don't be surprised if that attachment doesn't get eliminated until she actually dies. You may have to experience that and you may have to have that sadness with that in order to eliminate your attachment. One of the ways that I eliminated attachment with some of my relatives is while they're still alive, I envisioned in my mind as if they were dead. Like if I would be sitting in my room for a couple of hours or whatever, I would just kind of visualize and kind of get in touch as if I had just got news that they had died. And I cried. And even though they were still alive, I cried because I really kind of created in my mind conditions where I considered them to be dead. I just wanted to create the feeling as if they were dead and what that would feel like when I would get that news someday. And I got really in touch with that over multiple times. I got really in touch with them actually being dead and that I'd gotten that news and it made me sad. It made me cry and everything. But then when I was done, I picked up the phone and called them and just said, hey, how you doing? And it was great because I got in touch with that feeling of what it was like for them to be dead. And I experienced all those feelings. And I asked myself, if they were to die today, have I said everything that I wanted to say to them? And have I had every conversation that I needed to have with them? And I made sure I had all those conversations and I flushed all that stuff out while they were still alive. And now with all of everybody in my life, whether it's my wife, my son, my grandmother who's still alive, my sister, my dad, all these people who are still alive, if any of them died right now, I wouldn't have any sadness. I wouldn't have any discontentness. I still love them. I still have a genuine wish for them to be peaceful and them to be well, but I wouldn't cry because crying and grief and sadness, this is all discontentness. I would just appreciate the time that we've had together in this life together, and I would appreciate the time that we've had. But the way that I got to that is I envisioned them to be dead. I thought of any conversations or any topics that I haven't had discussions with them on, and I called them up and had those discussions with them. So all the family members that are in my life, everybody that I, that I have as family, there's no discussion that I haven't had, that I feel like if they died today, that wow, I never got a chance to say this to them. Every single family member that I have, I've had every discussion that I've needed to have with them and I wouldn't feel anything other than genuine love and gratitude and a wish for their well-being if I found out that they died today. So that could potentially help you to eliminate this attachment with your mom is kind of envision her to be dead and think about any conversations that you haven't had yet with her that you feel like you need to have. Because when she dies, at that point it's too late. And if there's any words or any conversations that you haven't had 
or you feel like there's any thoughts in your mind that you haven't been able to communicate, once she's dead, it's too late. And now it's harder to get rid of that attachment. But while she's alive, think through anything that you haven't said to her, any conversations you haven't had, and make sure you get all of that out so that on the day that she does die, there's nothing else that you would have said to her. You have nothing else to say because you've said everything that you wanted to say. And if there's anything that you need to hear from her, ask her those questions. Ask her how she feels about certain things. So when she dies, make sure that you've already had everything that you've wanted to say to her and any questions that you are curious about with her. Ask her. Ask her. I had questions of whether my mom or dad actually loved me at certain times in my life and my grandparents too. And I asked them, I just want to ask you, Grandma, do you really love me? Right? And because my family, they didn't really tell each other they love each other. I grew up in that kind of household where we never told each other that we love each other. So I kind of doubted whether my family loved me at different times in my life. So before they died, I asked them and I also told them that I love them because that's not something that we ever did in our household. So I wanted to make sure that all my family relatives, they know that I love them and also that I heard from them that they love me so that my mind wasn't longing or having a strong eagerness. So evaluate your mind and see what things you need to say to your mom and what things you need to hear from your mom before she dies. So that way when she dies, you can just be appreciative, have gratitude and wish her well. There's nothing else that the mind is longing for or having a strong eagerness for. And this goes for all relationships, not just our mom, but all relationships. You should live each day as if it's the last time you're going to see this person. And then any extra time that you get, it's like a bonus. So just live your life each day as if this is the last time you're ever going to see this person. So don't argue. Don't complain. Don't have hostility. Just live each day like it's the last time you're ever going to see them or hear from them. And just be joyful and let people know you love them. And have those conversations that you need to have, things you need to share or things you need to hear from them. This is great. And this all really builds on the first part of your talk today, really about not having expectations of, of others, um, not craving others to behave in a certain way. If we do that with our parents, then cultivating all these wholesome states becomes a lot easier. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay, so we have a, a question from Mirza. So Mirza asks, in the Siga Levada Sutta, there's a duty for a child to his parents or her parents to keep up the lineage and tradition of my family. Does this mean a child should perform the rituals of one's inherited tradition if that causes less trauma for the parents? Mirza also says the context is for one who is not born in a culture that embraces the teachings of the Buddha. Okay, so what this particular part is talking about is the Buddha talks about ministering in the six directions and he gives kind of like five things that parents should do for their children and five things that the children should do for their parents. And one of those is the Buddha says that the child should carry on the 
tradition of the the family. Essentially, the children, the the translations that I use, he talks about the children should learn the trade of the parents. So if the dad's a welder, the child should learn that and carry it on, or a blacksmith or something like this. This is the way that things happened 2,500 years ago, is we didn't have the type of educational system that we have today, where a child can think up anything that it would like to become, it can go get educated, and then it can become and have that occupation. Where in the old days, you basically grew up and you apprenticed under your parents. And whatever your parents did, you carried on that good name and that good business by building the gamma of the family bigger and bigger and bigger so that your family would be better and better known with a better and better reputation for providing that particular service or product to the community. And that's what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. And if that works for you and you would like to do that, go ahead and do it. But there's a difference in today's world where we actually have the ability to go out and get educated. Maybe my dad's an electrician, but I would like to be a computer programmer and I can go pursue that. So we don't need to learn the trade of our parents in order to carry it on unless you're in that particular type of culture. Here in Thailand, there's some families that do do it that way, but there's some families that don't. He's not talking about the spiritual traditions or ceremonies and things like that. He's talking about the trades, the craftsmen, the livelihood of the family. By the children learning this from their parents, it grows and grows and grows and makes the, the family more prosperous and it helps the family. But this particular teaching, if it applies, then that's great. You can do that. But if you aspire to do something else, you should do something else and build up that for you. Because if you have craving to be a computer programmer, but you just do electrician just because your dad does it or my dad does it, then my mind, I'm still craving the computer programming and I'm going to be reborn if I die with that craving. So you've got to pursue whatever interest and goals that you have and fulfill those. This particular one, you don't have to worry about it unless it applies to you. Thanks, David. That's all our questions. Okay. So let me just kind of summarize true love a little bit before we finish up for today. What true love is, is just loving people as they are. It's that simple, just loving people as they are, not trying to impress upon people to meet our expectations, not trying to force people through our own obligations, not trying to take certain things that are in our mind and forcing other people to do them. And we only love them if they fulfill these expectations. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's, I only love you if you fulfill these expectations. And if you don't fulfill these, then I don't love you anymore. That's not love. That's craving. That's attachment. What true love without attachment is, is just loving people as they are. Just loving people as they are. And allowing each person to be their own person. And not trying to force them into being any particular way. Allowing them to walk whatever way that they walk. One of the things that I said to my wife when my son was in her stomach because we knew he was a boy is I said, you know, if my son is born 
and he decides that he would like to love another man and he would like to have a same-sex relationship, I'm completely fine with that. I love him regardless. And my wife said, yeah, I feel the same way. And I said, if he grows up and he decides he needs to have a sex change and he isn't interested in being a boy anymore and he would like to be a, a woman, I would love him regardless. Her and I talked and said, our only role as a parent is to support and encourage our son to be whatever he decides he would like to be. That's true love. Support your partners, support your children, support and encourage your parents, your brothers and your siblings in whatever they would like to be. Don't try to force your expectations and obligations on other people. Just love people as they are. This is true love. And if you can get to that point where you can have that same love for all beings, you're not trying to force or impress upon other people to do things your way. You don't have expectations. You don't have obligations. You don't have requirements for people to earn your love that you just love all beings because they're human beings, because they're animals. You just have a genuine wish for all beings to be well without obligation, without expectation. You just love all beings as they are. This is love without attachment. And you can have much more fulfilling and wholesome relationships this way because it's going to feel peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because there's not this longing and strong eagerness where you're trying to force each other to do certain things. So work on learning this more. Work on even more trying to practice it, right? You may need to revisit this topic many times. You may need to read the chapter many times. You may need to ask questions in the face group book about this many times. You may need to have many private conversations about this. You need to think about it. You need to reflect on it. You need to figure it out intellectually, let it soak into the mind, and then you need to apply it in daily life through practice. And it's only then that you'll realize the real results of practicing true love as you see your relationships blossom and they become more fulfilling because the relationships are more peaceful. When there's not craving, desire, and attachment in the relationship, the relationship becomes peaceful. It blossoms. So this is what you will see. But it takes more time to learn what true love is and loving without attachment. And then it takes even more time to practice it in all situations. Just because we've discussed it today doesn't mean you're going to be able to go out and practice it tomorrow. So keep reading the chapter multiple times. Listen to this talk on the podcast multiple times. Ask questions in the Facebook group. Contact me privately and work on learning about true love and applying it in your daily life. And until next time, have a very, very wonderful rest of your day. And let me just end by saying I love you. Thank you for joining. I wish you well. I wish you peace. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.